Did you know that the first mention of love in the Scriptures was mentioned in the context of a great test? It came to pass that God did test Abraham. The phrase, these things, is a powerful phrase. This starts, this kind of comes in the side door to this whole story of how God works in the affairs of mankind. And after the sin in Eden, and after the sin grew so much that the thoughts and the intentions of mankind's heart were only evil continually, so God wiped off all of the life from the face of the earth with the great flood, except for Noah and his family. And he starts over, as it were, in this man Abraham. But after these things, here in chapter 22 of Genesis, earlier we find another great mistake, a mere suggestion that after God had promised Abraham and Sarah that they would have a child, and they were already old, past the childbearing years, it was a difficult concept to swallow, to think about. And so, in their, wait, in their waiting and in their impatience and trying to help God, Sarah says, there's Hagar, the handmaiden, why don't you go into her? And so Abraham hearkened to the voice of his wife, and he goes into Hagar, and Ishmael is born. And there has never been more of a wild ass of a man than the descendants of Ishmael. To this day, we're watching the news to see if we're on the brink of war again because of the descendants of this Ishmael. God did not let Ishmael live before him. The request was made, let Ishmael live before you know. It's going to be you and Sarah that has this child because it's by my hand that this is happening. And so Isaac is born. And now God is going to test Abraham to see what kind of man he really is. And one of the ways he's going to do it, he's going to give him a, a heart-rending commandment, a test, and see how he reacts. And he's going to be able to tell what's on the inside of Abraham's heart, even though he knew that. But one of the ways he could tell for sure is how that manifested itself out in the life of Abraham. And so in chapter 22 of Genesis, verse 1 and 2, it came about after those things, Ishmael and all that business, that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and there offer him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. And I can't imagine, and we really couldn't grasp this had, had it not been for the writer of Hebrews explaining some of the things that was going through Abraham's mind as he went to take, carry out this commandment. He was reasoning that God is able to raise him up from the dead. I didn't even have him to start with. This is all a miracle. It's all by God's hand. And so now he wants me to kill him, my only son, this child of promise, and offer him as a burnt offering. I know, he'll raise him up from the dead. He must have been thinking something like that because the Bible says he was reasoning in his heart those things. And so in John 8, verse 56 through 59, we see another passage that sheds some light on what was going on back in the life of Abraham. And it appears from that that God was testing Abraham's heart and his life to see if a Redeemer, if a Savior could be sent that could be received and obeyed and followed and the whole eternal plan would come in, into being. And so we read in verse 56 beginning, your father, <coughs> Jesus said, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You're not yet fifty years old, and you've seen Abraham. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. God is always spoken of in the present tense throughout the Scriptures because He always exists. He's always there. He's eternal. 
And so, therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. And so, back to the story of Abraham. Abraham goes so far with this as he, he takes some men with him. He takes Isaac. He takes the animals and saddles them up with supplies and for camping out and all the things they would need and some wood for the sacrifice. And they get right to the brink of the, the mountain. And Abraham says to the companions there, to his other men, to the servants, he said, You wait here. I and the lad will go yonder and worship and will return. And I just feel for this father, after all he's been through and after all these episodes and all these promises kept, that he's thinking, God wants me to take this young man and take him up there and, and kill him. And he, he says to the servants, we'll be back. Was he thinking, I'll be back by myself, but y'all don't know that yet? Or is he thinking, it's going to be okay, we will be back together. So anyway, he goes up. And the son says to the father, and there's a passage in there that just grabs at my heart when it says, and they continued together, Abraham and Isaac continued together. Here's a father and his beloved son going together to offer the ultimate sacrifice on the human level. And so they go up, and as they're going up, Isaac says, and most scholars think he was probably in his early 20s, maybe as old as 25 at this time, but he wasn't three years old. But anyway, he asked, we got fire here. And we got wood here, but where's the sacrifice? And what kind of question is that? And what are you going to say? You're him? He says, God will provide. And as he raises the knife to take the life of Isaac, the angel of the Lord, which in this case would be the Lord himself, stays his hand and says, Do the child, do the boy no harm, for now I know, seeing, if you have not withheld your only son from me. And so, as reflecting on this, James says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son upon the altar? And see, when he stayed his hand, they saw there was a ram caught by its horns in the thicket. And they took that ram and they offered it as a sacrifice. So there was a substitute. There was a sacrifice provided. So Abraham names the name of the place Jehovah-Jireth, which means God will provide. But notice this wording here. Was Abraham our father, wasn't he justified when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? Now, did he or did he not offer his son on the altar? He went up there to do it. He was going to do it. He almost did it. And God stayed his hand and they offered this ram instead. But this passage says he offered up Isaac on the altar. Because Isaac died that day on the altar of Abraham's heart. He went as far as he could go without doing the act itself. And God was looking at that. And he said, now I know, seeing you've not withhold, withheld your only son. So was he not justified when he offered his son? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and God believed, or Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. This was a severe test to see what the human heart could, could handle, and to see if the Messiah could come and be received. And so God still tests our lives. And this is seen throughout the Scriptures. God has a plan for our lives. And we can't always see what that is. And when we go through some of the hurtful things in life, we cannot figure out how in the world can this be a good thing and how can God have this plan for my life. And yet, on the other side of the storm, we see things more clearly. But we think we got this. We think, yeah, life is hard. It's uphill. I can handle this. I'll keep my balance and go right on. I'll go for it. And that's our plan. But God's plan may involve... Uh, a swift river, a uh, clinging vine. It may involve a swamp. It may involve some obstacles, some things to climb and get over, some storms to go through. 
And yet we will come out on the other side. And so James says, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And throughout the Scriptures, we see great men and women of God who were put through the fire swamp, the fires of the tests, of the swamps, of the jungles, of the deserts, of the mountains, and the caves, and all these things these people went through. And so the psalmist says, For you have tried us, O God. You have refined us as silver is refined. And so we understand that just like in our, in our experience, we see the great testing grounds in the white sands in New Mexico or someplace, and they test a missile or a rocket engine or something or a bomb. Will this weapon work? Or they go into a lab and they test some chemicals to see what does this do to the human body? Will it make it better? Will it help? How does this compound fit with the body chemistry? Or they'll test some muscle or they'll test some athlete or some ability, some something to test this circuit to see if we can miniaturize it down to you have a whole universe on your wrist kind of thing. They test all these things. And so God says, I'll, I'll test my creation. I'll see what you're made of. So God does look at the heart, but He does offer some tests. First Peter 1 and verse 7 talks about this testing, this proving, so that the proof of your faith, the testing of your faith, being more precious than gold, He's talking about our faith and the testing, is more precious than gold, and gold is tested. It's perishable. And even when it's tested by fire, some of it perishes. Some of the slag goes away and the, the refuse, the, the no good part. But then after all, the, all we go through, we may be found, the testing of our faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So when we've been tested and when we persevere and when we hang in there, then there is calm after the storm. Then it can be well with our soul. And I know it's difficult. We all face these things as they come to us and it just doesn't make sense that this can be any good. There's no good in this at all. And yet later we see things more clearly. Sometimes we're tested by the slow but steady passing of time. And this is an amazing thing. Here we're counting time and holidays and years and calendars and all that because it does happen. And we have really no control over that. And in the case of the Israelites, Nehemiah 9 recalls what God was doing when Israel disobeyed and they ended up 40 years wandering in the wilderness. God just flat out says, I was watching you. I watched you to see what caused you not to get into the promised land that I was providing for you, but now I'm watching what you're doing in the wilderness, and I did all that to test you to see what was in your heart. Look at verse, uh, this verse. These 40 years that, uh, that uh, he tested you, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So God is watching. He always has been. He was testing the Israelites those 40 years to see if this time when I say something, if you'll know that I mean it and these things will come to pass and it will happen just as I laid it out. And so he's, he's testing them. And he tests us through that same thing, the slow but steady passing of time. And I wonder sometimes how God views our enterprises. We have a lot of misconceptions about time and how we use our time. And we say, well, uh, I, don't have a, I don't have enough time. Meh. That's my grandson's. He's five years old. That's one of his favorite things when something's not right. He goes, meh, sounds the buzzer. That's the wrong answer. Um, I don't have enough time. Well, everybody has all the time that there is. 168 hours in a week, we all got that. Well, but I can't spend it like I want to. I got a, my boss does this, my job is this, school is that, family this. Yes, but we still all have that much time at, there are factors that relate to how we spend our time and what we get to do with our time. But as God watches how we use our hands and feet and eyes and ears and all that, 
What is he thinking? Are we redeeming the time because the days are evil? People at my age and beyond look at life and can see that there's not as much time left as there used to be. It's just not there. And so somebody says, well, I've got plenty of time yet. No, meh. That's the wrong answer again. Nobody knows how much time anybody has until God calls them home. We don't know. If we're 99, we probably figure we got less time by comparison. But we don't know how much time that is. But time continues to pass. And here's the clincher on that. Every single person, every individual, will use all the time that you have. You can save your money. You can, you can give it away. You can spend it. You've got all those choices. But with time, it just goes by and it's gone. And everybody will use all that there is in their life. So how do we use our time? Are we building bridges? I was thinking the other day about a little tree that my firstborn grandson and I picked up down by the river, a little mimosa tree about the size of a pencil in its stalk. Planted that in the yard and it got to be about 15 feet high or so over the years. And I ended up having to cut it down. But anyway, uh, I thought the other day about acorns that fall. And I thought, that thing, if I don't mow it in the spring, that thing will be a tree. And you see them spring up. And I thought about planting some trees. And I, it hurt me. Because I thought, well, I'll plant a tree that I won't get to see grow. And yet, isn't that the very essence of life? That we build bridges. That we plant orchards. That we put things out that will be there for the next generation and the generation after them. Why do we build this building? Is it a millstone or is it a great blessing from God for generations to come? God watches our enterprises and He wants us to redeem the time because the days are evil. And you think about your life. What is your life but a vapor? It's just like a cloud passing over and the shadow goes by or, or a fog comes up and then it blows away and it's cleared out. And you look at your life and it seems like some of these things didn't even happen because it was so long ago. It's like a dream. And here we are already. And here I am 70 years old thinking, how did I still feel like I act like a teenager and fool everybody? But it's like, how can this, these things be? And time just goes right on by. And the passing of time, though, may mean salvation. Peter said some people get confused over this because God hasn't returned yet. They think He's not going to. And they say, where is the promise of His coming? Yeah, we heard all these sermons. We heard all this Bible talk. Well, this is, he's coming one day. He's coming one day. Well, where is He? He's not, he's not come yet. So maybe he's not coming. And Peter says they're thinking that they got some stinking thinking going on there because God doesn't count time the way we count time. A day with him is like a thousand years or a thousand years as is one day. And the cross is so fresh it was like two or three days ago because God doesn't count time the way we do. And so God watches our enterprises and we build bridges and we plant trees and we wait... Because the long-suffering of God, His holding back on coming again to end the world, is an opportunity for salvation. And so God watches our enterprises with our time, but He also tests us by the responsibilities He places on us. The Bible teaches that to whom much is given, much is required. And so there's always work to do. There's always something that needs to be done. And every once in a while, us old folks get the idea that we're about done. And there's nothing left for us to do. Nobody cares. Nobody needs us. Nobody wants to hear us. They're not even interested in blah, 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 blah as the devil is working on us. And I would just say to that, man, that's not the right answer. When we've been given talents, God expects us to make use of them. 
He doesn't command us to be successful. He commands us to be faithful and to sow the seeds of the kingdom, and God will give the increase. And so we need to cut out this business of I can't do it. Sometimes we need to review our perspective on life. At the opening of the great Epcot Center, Disney's Epcot Center, a speech was given by Severide, and he said that basically there are three kinds of people in the world. There are well poisoners. If you think about the old days in a little village, somebody rides into town and dumps something in the well that ruins the whole place or maybe kills everybody. Some people have such a bitter, caustic attitude that they're just like a well poisoner. And everywhere they go, they just infect with their venom and their poison everybody's wellspring of life and breaks other people's hearts. I hope you're not a well poisoner. Some people are grass cutters, he said, and they just do the, the status quo. Cut the grass, it'll grow back. Cut the grass, it'll grow back. Cut the grass, it'll grow back. Sunday we do this. Sunday we do this. Sunday we do this. Sunday we do this. Just the status quo, the grass cutters. But then there are some who are dream builders like Disney was, and we still see the vision he saw come to fruition, and we see some of the greatness there in the entertainment industry. Our lives can be a lot like that. We can live as a well poisoner or a grass cutter or as a dream builder thinking about the future. A lady came one time to Jesus just before he died and she had an alabaster box of precious ointment and she broke that open and put it on him and anointed him for the grave, as it were. And she was criticized. This could have been used. We could have sold that and got the money and give it to the poor. We could do a lot of religious neat stuff with this. Jesus said, leave her alone. She has done what she could. And can you imagine getting to the end of your life and somebody says, maybe God Himself, she did what she could. He did what He could. What else does God expect from us? Things we can't do. He empowers us to do the things He commands. Sometimes, as a young mother, a stay-at-home mom, the whole world smells like McDonald's. It seems like all I do is laundry and cooking and dishes and cleaning and all this. And what's it worth? I mean, those things come upon us. Or young families, we, we struggle with things. In the book of 1 Samuel chapter 30, David and some of his mighty men went down to battle. And there was an issue about equal pay for equal work came up way back then. And the people who stayed back at the camp and guarded the supplies and guarded the tents and guarded the baggage or the stuff, I think the King James Version calls it, David said they're going to get, us, they're going to get the same pay as the guys with the danger pay to go down and fight the battle and take the spoils of battle. They're going to get the same thing. Well, they didn't go down and fight, but they stayed with the baggage. And you see there's a security in that. Somebody's got to stay back at the fort. Somebody, you got an aircraft carrier in today's world with 6,000 sailors on there, 6,000 enlisted uh, naval people, and somebody's in the kitchen 24-7. It goes around. You've got to eat. You've got to maintain the aircraft. You've got to maintain the equipment, the engine. All these parts are important, even though they're different. Not everybody gets to be top gun and fly around and zoom and do all that and shoot down the enemy. Uh, but it has to all be together maintained. And so sometimes there's a great honor Actually, always a great honor in staying with the baggage, raising those children, taking care of the house. It's all important and it's all equal to what everybody else is doing. And in the church, if you can unlock a door, if you can carry out some trash, if you can paint something or wash something or teach a class or preach or lead singing or whatever it is, there's a place. Could I dare say that there's not anything you can do that we don't need in this congregation? Whatever it is, God has a place, a way for you to use your talent. 
Sometimes as God looks at our lives, He places responsibilities on us in our family and with our career and with our schoolmates and classmates and with our church family. Sometimes God tests us by simply holding up His Word as a mirror. It's as though God says, look in here. You see yourself in here? Listen to what James says about that. For if anyone is a hearer of the Word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he's looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. The one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. There's a great blessing in doing, not just thinking, not just mentally giving assent to, yeah, I believe in God, yeah, the church is cool, uh, yeah, uh, the elders are okay, and they'll, they'll handle this, they're deciders here. But beyond that, what you do. You know, one of the things that the journalists have learned in, over the years in, in interviewing at the scene of a crime or the scene of some, some incident, one of the quickest ways to get at the truth as to what happened is you don't go up and ask somebody, what happened? They go up and they say, what did you do? And if they start there, say, well, I came out of my apartment and there was this fire over there, or I came out of my apartment and these police cars were over here. So what did you do? And that's really what God is watching this whole time. What did the Summers Avenue Church of Christ do? Well, cool. But what did you do? What did you do? Look inside. Look in the Word of God. And when we look in there, you can find plenty to do. You can find your self-worth is not in the abundance of your possessions. Jesus said, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he goes on in that passage to relate to us what really matters to God is being rich toward God and laying up treasures ahead of time in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt. And see, that's another thing that just makes you want to grit your teeth, or me anyway, my plastic ones, about how life works. When you get all this stuff that you've been trying to get, and you've got to maintain it because it, it'll rust, it'll warp, it'll split, it'll weather, it'll crack, or somebody will steal it unless somebody stays with the baggage and guards it. So you've got this maintenance to take care of. But as you look in the mirror, you find that you're blessed in what you do with your hands and with your feet and with your eyes. And to the Corinthians, Paul said, you're doing a great job around here, and you've been giving to the poor, so I want you to complete this task also. Bring this to fruition. Continue for the next generations to come and worship. Continue for the next generations to send out Bible courses and to reach out to the homeless and the poor and the downtrodden and all these things you've been doing. In fact, he says to the church in Thessalonica, he said, you've been walking to please God. I know that. I know the reputation you have, and I know as Christians you've been walking to please God. So, coach, what do you want me to do? If I'm so good at this, what do you want me to do? And he says, excel more and more. And also, you're doing a good job at loving one another. So what's my advice to you, he says, for that? You're doing so good at loving one another? Excel still more, New American Standard Version says. Do a, you're doing great? Just get better. Just keep on doing it. In Psalm 26 and verse 2, the psalmist, in pouring out his heart to God, looking within himself, realizing there's a great deficiency between what he is and has been and what he ought to be, he says, examine me, O Lord, and try me, and test my mind and my heart. You know, anytime you can hold still and be still and know that He is God and reflect on your own life and on your own heart, it's a good, it's a good time. I hope that you have many more days and months and years and that you use that time to reflect on the treasure you're sending up ahead of time. In the Psalm 139, 
The psalmist says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me. And lead me in the everlasting way. When a person turns their heart and life to Jesus, pleading no contest and just say, Here I am, take me, Lord, as I am. They then obey from the heart that form of doctrine delivered to them or baptize into Christ. The cleansing blood of that sacrifice cleanse them from all sin. They become a new creature, a new person. And we can just rear back in, in joy. He gave me a song. He gave me a song. Because it's the song of salvation. The saints and angels song. The song of the redeemed. Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Is today the day you need to make your decision once and for all? I'll step out in faith and I'll do what God wants for me to do as He looks at my heart and watches how I walk and how I act. Or it may be that as a Christian something is wrong in your life that you need to correct that involves maybe the rest of the congregation to ask for prayers or forgiveness. Or some things may just be between you and God, but if there's something today that you could benefit by by obeying God's will for your life in either being baptized today to be saved, added to the church, or to make things right in prayer and confession and repentance. We'll, we'll receive you and pray with you and for you if you want to come as we stand together and as we sing this good song. <clears throat> My burdens all away up to a brighter 